Hi, and thanks for joining us on the Civil Squared podcast. Today's episode sounds a little bit different than normal. We got no music, no voiceover, and that's because this episode is a little bit different. It is the recording from a live event we did on Thursday, October 29th, 2020, and it is a conversation about conversations. We talked with Russ Roberts, who is the host of a weekly podcast, Econ Talk, which you may have heard of. Uh, It's very likely you would have heard of it because it's a very popular podcast. He has conversations with all kinds of different people, and he's recorded over 700 episodes. Russ is the John and Jean Denault Research Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, but you're probably more likely to know him as a result of Econ Talk. And if you don't know him because of Econ Talk, you might know him because of the books he's written, uh, How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life, An Unexpected Guide to Human Nature and Happiness, or The Invisible Heart, An Economic Romance. And if you haven't read his books, you might still know him because he is the creator of two rap videos uh, that are about actually the ideas of two famous economists, John Maynard Keynes and F.A. Hayek. But the reason you might know them is because these are economic rap battles, uh, very high quality productions and very popular. They've been viewed more than 11 million times on YouTube. So chances are you have come into contact with Russ in some way. Now, we wanted to talk to Russ because after having recorded more than 700 conversations with economists, philosophers, political scientists, journalists, um, everything in between, we thought, here's a guy who knows an awful lot about how to have a good conversation. And that's what we talked about during our event. Now, there was a live audience. You're not going to hear them, but you may hear some of their questions. In every other respect, though, we hope it's just like a regular conversation on Civil Squared and it teaches you something about how to have better conversations and what we can learn from one another when we have productive conversations. So I hope you'll enjoy it. So welcome, Russ. Great to be with you. Um, I suspect most people on here know Russ, but I'm going to give you a little bit of background. He is the John and Jean Denault Research Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. And what is so cool about Russ is all the fantastic work he's done to make economics accessible to everyone. He's got books with awesome titles like How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life or The Invisible Heart, an Economic Romance. He's got videos like the rap battles between famous economists, um, poems. We, we sent some of that out with some of the confirmation emails and all kinds of different creative outlets. He's a teacher, three-time teacher of the year, and he's currently teaching at George Mason University. But of course, most of you know Russ probably as the host of Econ Talk, where how many episodes now, Russ? Over 725? 760, actually, plus. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, he talks to all kinds of people, and his guests have a wide variety of expertise and knowledge and viewpoints. So, um, Russ, would you describe yourself as someone who knows how to have a productive conversation? Is that the kind of thing you think about yourself? Uh, well, I think about that all the time when I'm hosting Econ Talk. And I have to say, I'm for better or for worse, I'm not teaching at George Mason these days, although oh, yeah. I enjoyed it very much. I'm full-time at the Hoover Institution. Okay. Uh, no problem. Um, if you go back and listen to Econ Talk uh, in, when we started in 2006 or 2007 and compare it to today, you'll I think you'll notice two things. One, in the early days, I only interviewed economists, and now they're just a part of who I talk to. I try to talk to people who 
can teach me something. And I, there's still some economists who can teach me something, I hope, so I, and that you can learn from as a listener. So I do still talk to them, but I'm interested in philosophy, history, psychology, education policy, health policy, and so on. So that's one obvious difference. But the second difference is I've changed my style. And part of that is just getting better at doing something when you've done it 760 times. But a lot of it was you know, a reflection on what I wanted the show to be. Yeah. And in particular, uh, I'm always eager to invite people onto the program that I don't agree with uh, ideologically and strive or policy-wise and strive to have a civil conversation and to give them the floor uh, when, when, whenever I can. And having said that, I'll add, it's really hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> as, a, as a former faculty and member and professor, most people go into academic life because they like to hear themselves talk. Uh, and they like to lecture by definition, that's listen to yourself talk. Uh, and, and so what's been you know, exhilarating for me actually is both being learning how to be a little more patient and uh, a little less uh, strident when interviewing people. And if you ever see me speak publicly in an event, which is the equivalent, you know, giving a lecture, a lot of people will say to me, well, what happened to the guy who's the host of Econ Talk? You're so excited. And my job on Econ Talk is to be less excited, excited intellectually, but less excited about my own particular acts that I might want to grind and to make sure that the person I'm interviewing has a chance to share their ideas. Now, I challenge them yeah. you know, it's often if I don't agree with them, uh, but I try to do it politely and try to do it civilly and try to do it in a way that's educational, not to score points, not to win, uh, but to help us all learn something. And you know, one of my favorite unfortunate comments I'll get sometimes is, how could you let that person get away with saying such and such? And the answer is, well, I thought I could learn something from them. Yeah. At that particular point, I didn't learn so much, but there were other moments where I did. And, and that's the nature of, of conversation. So I want to go back. Actually, you mentioned listening to the early episodes of Econ Talk. Um, and I, I want to go back to the beginning and ask, you know, you mentioned that um, as a professor, you get used to the sort of lecture format. But I take it when you started Econ Talk, you did that intentionally with conversation in mind, right? You said you were talking to mostly economists and now you're talking to different people. But I imagine there would have been people who would have been interested in a podcast of you lecturing. Why conversation? Why was that the approach you took? So that's a great, great question. And it, it brings something I think that we should talk about that I think is powerful. And um, I don't have any evidence for it. It's just a pet theory of mine, which is that the human brain is designed to listen and learn via conversation rather than monologue. Um, you learn something from a monologue, you learn something from a lecture, but something different is happening when you exchange ideas. One of the things I tell my guests in the last few years is, I always say this works best as a conversation, meaning it's not I ask a question, you answer it, then I ask the next question, you answer it and vice versa. My ideal, which doesn't always happen, but my ideal is that the guest and I create something unique. It's not just a list of things that in their book that are interesting. It's the product of our back and forth and something novel comes out of that. And I like to think that for listeners, you know, one of the things listeners sometimes say is you ask the same questions that I wanted to ask. So that's one way to think about my job. I'm there to ask the question you as the listener would ask. So I'm simulating in a certain way 
the opportunity for the listener to engage in conversation with the guest. And at the same time, you know, I think that that works best. So it's, I think, allows the listener to, and myself to process that information. So it's an art. Uh, it's hard to do via Zoom because you can't interject effectively. You have to kind of wait till the other person has, has stopped speaking. In general, that's a good idea. Yeah. Uh, it's a good idea not to be so eager to get your words in that you interrupt. But in actual human conversation, I think interruption is, is very common. And we interject lots of things besides our correct opinion relative to our uh, person we're talking to. So I'll, like you just smiled at me, you might uh, chuckle appreciatively. Mm -hmm. That's your way of saying to me, oh, that was funny and I knew it. So go keep going. Sometimes you'll just, you say, uh-huh. There's all, meaning I'm listening. So all those things get a little bit lost over Zoom, but, yeah. but we do the best we can to, to simulate that. Well, and in fact, I was thinking today, it's nice to be on Zoom because you don't have to have a mask on and not having facial expressions yeah. when you're talking to people makes it really hard to get all those cues. So um, we were talking about conversation and we, uh, in a recent episode of our podcast, had Tanya Israel, who is a professor of psychology. I learned the most, I think, from psychologists about this uh, at UC Santa Barbara. And she's got a book called Beyond Your Bubble about um, conversations across a political divide. And when I first read her book, I thought to myself, I mean, how can I need a step-by-step -step thing on conversation? But then at the end of it, I thought most of what I do isn't really dialogue or conversation, because if you're going to, the way she describes it, if you're going to do it first, she talks about conversation as an opportunity, not a mandate, right? You don't have to engage in every, you know, conversation that presents itself to you. But also, um, she talks about the importance of getting ready for it and, and not just knowing what you want to accomplish, that's important, but also being ready to control your own kind of physical reactions and everything else, particularly at times when you're talking to people who you really disagree with, because, you know, being attentive to the fact that your blood pressure might be going up, you know, if they're saying something you disagree with. And when I looked at all those things, I thought, man, if you're really going to have a productive dialogue, you have to do some work. So what kind of stuff are you doing as you're thinking about the conversations you're having with these people? And in part, I guess I'm asking too, how do you decide who you're going to talk to? Because I suspect all kinds of people present themselves as being interested in talking to you on the podcast. How do you pick who you're going to talk to? And once you have, what do you do to get prepared for that conversation? It's a very subtle thing. You said, you know, it's not just what you want to get out of the conversation. And I think a lot of times we have a purposeful aspect to conversation. Let's say I'm, I'm negotiating a, a deal. Mm -hmm. yeah, I want to get, there's certain things I want to make sure I, I get in the, in the final negotiation. Uh, or I might want to get your okay to do something. So I'm going to maybe set you up with some kind thoughts to begin with, and then I'll do my ask. And that's my goals. Like I've, I've got to get her agreement. So a lot of conversations are like that. And there's like outside the business context, there's the, oh, I, I've got to tell them that story. I hope I get to tell that story. Or, you know, I just read this good, good book. I'm going to tell this person I'm having lunch with all about this good book. So I have that, those urges all the time. You know, I have a goal for the conversation. Mm -hmm. And I want to suggest, and then I will tie it into econ talk and, and just political conversation. I want to suggest that it's not always good to have a goal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I, think, I think it's sort of natural that we say, you know, I got to make sure I get the most out of this half an hour I have with so-and-so. But a lot of times... And in my experience, the best conversations 
come when I don't have a goal. Yeah. I'm going to go into this conversation or even the other extreme. Uh, I'm going to see what this person needs from me and I'm going to give them that. And sometimes it's just attention. I'm just going to listen. Sometimes it's, they need my thoughts on some question they're struggling with. And, you know, if I'm really eager to get my two cents in my turn, my alternative rant, I may miss that chance to connect with the person I'm talking to. And that's a real lost opportunity. So yeah. I just want to try, I just want to put your mind, I was teasing about, you know, you're being wrong or anything. It's not that it's just sometimes in a, in a human context, having a goal is actually a mistake. Yeah. You don't want to have a goal. You want to say, I am open to what this half an hour, hour lunch or coffee encounter or Zoom call. I'm going to see what, what comes of it. And I'm going to view it like I would, you know, you can think about uh, travel this way. Uh, you can think about, and I was talking to an econ talk guest uh, that's coming up soon about this. You, you can see yourself as, as a uh, consumer, as a tourist or an appreciator. And that's a certain headset a certain mindset to put place to put your head. Like, so I'm going to this conversation as a consumer, you know, what's my, what am I getting out of it? But maybe sometimes you just go in as an appreciator. It's like, I'm just going to enjoy this. We'll see where it goes. You know, some people, they go on vacation, they, they map out their itinerary to the half an hour. We're going to this museum at 10 o'clock. We'll say there for an hour and a half. Then we'll have lunch at this other day. Then we'll see that fresco over there. And, it, you know, we'll have all these, this plan. And that's personality disorder which I suffer from myself sometimes. It's, it's a nature, it's the nature of our, of our personality, our, our, our demeanor, our temperament. Other people go, I'm going to walk around this city and who knows what I'll see? Who yeah. knows what I'll find? Of course, if you're not careful, you miss the Mona Lisa. Yeah. It's overrated in my view. I haven't seen it, but you know, I think that's too many people spend their trip to Paris worried about when they're going to see the Mona Lisa. Boy. And they got a list of things they have to check yeah. off. That's right? a mistake. Yeah. yeah. That's another way to say it. In this conversation, what's on my to-do list for this conversation? And, and I'm going to prep beforehand. I'm going to figure out what I'm going to get out of it. Just put yeah. it in my notebook or on my, you know, in my, in my app on my phone or my computer. And then I'll later, I'll, I'll see how I did and I'll get better. Yeah. And I think a lot of times the right edge is I'm going to see what happens. So to come now to bring yeah. it to econ talk. Yeah. You but know, what, I, before you do that, if I yeah. can just, just real quickly, that's, that's all very fair. And, and as a philosopher, personally, I feel like that's the right way. Like those dinner conversations you have where you've sat for hours talking to people and you didn't plan to start out or plan to get to a particular point yeah. are often the most productive. To her credit, um, she, or to, to credit her and not my mistake of what she's doing, but I think this is important actually. She's talking specifically about um, political conversations about political issues. And, and it actually lines up with what you're saying. When she's talking about being intentional, she wants to make sure that people don't go in with too many expectations, right? To say, well, I'm going to go talk to this person about who disagrees with me and I'm going to persuade them right. of my opinion. First, she says, you've got to not you've got to not overestimate your own ability to persuade people, right? Yeah. Great idea. Um, but that but that productive conversation does so many things, all of which you just talked about a little bit. Um, it helps you understand people. It helps you appreciate different points of view. It helps you refine your own point of view. Yeah. Um, and it, it can be healing, right? I mean, it can actually heal relationships if you're doing it. And none of that has to have to do with 
persuasion. So I want to, I definitely want to get point. back to that, um, particularly in your most recent episode of um, Econ Talk, which I thought was a fabulous kind of modeling of people who disagree talking about stuff. But but now I want to go back and let you answer the other part of the question about how you're getting prepared. So um, you asked me two other parts, which was mm -hmm. how do I pick my guests and, and how do I get prepared? And the simple answer of how I pick my guests is uh, I pick guests whose book I want to read or whose brand I want to pick. You know, there's really nothing else to it. If I don't want to read their book, I don't want to talk to them, even if they're really interesting. It's just, I like to read the book beforehand. And, you know, so that's pretty simple. And I've made some mistakes. Mm -hmm. I've, I've, I've invited guests, turns out I don't want to read their book. Uh, or they're not very articulate, which is a separate problem. But most of them are fabulous. I, you know, and I, it's an incredible gift. I thank Liberty Fund that sponsors Econ Talk for this opportunity. It's kept me intellectually vibrant in a way I would never, ever have imagined. Um, I've learned more from Econ Talk probably than many of my listeners, which is glorious. And so I pick my guests, basically the simple one-line version is people I want to learn from, people who have something to teach me, help me understand something better. In terms of prep, I read the book beforehand, I write the questions. What I'm trying to do in the questions is create a narrative arc that I think will allow the listener to absorb the information that I think is worth understanding from the book. So, you know, I go off that script. I don't just read down the list of questions. I try to make it more spontaneous. And in recent years, I've tried harder at that to be open to where the conversation might go. Doesn't always work, by the way. You know, I'm talking yeah. this about this beauty of spontaneity. Sometimes you go down a rabbit hole. It's like, oh, why do we go over there? That was a mistake. Just stuck to the script. So it's imperfect. It's not science, obviously. But um, the other thing I'll Actually, do is this, this makes me wonder, though, in those conversations, because I've listened to a lot of your conversations. Are you doing a lot of editing on them or is it, you know, uh, you've yeah, OK, almost none. I, okay. I tell the guest board and I said, this is our, you know, it's our conversation. That's what we're going to put up. Occasionally, I take out. I lose my train of thought. We do go down a rabbit hole. Um, and I know people are going to just be confused. It's not it's ter you know, it's uninteresting, but I don't generally edit for uninteresting. It's not. Yeah the idea. And I hope it's mostly all, all of it's mostly interesting or it wouldn't be, a, you know, worth, worth having on the, on the show. Um, and the other thing in prep I want to mention is that, you know, I, I'm going to say this, I'm, I'm not sure it's true, but when I have a guest on who I know I'm going to disagree with, sometimes I prep myself to try to be calm. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, I, you know, people, again, listeners will say to me, why, how could you let him get away with that? And I want to say, yeah, it wasn't easy. Just how could you stay calm when, when, when the guest claimed, and I, you know, it's sometimes it's hard. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that I have a different demeanor when I give a public presentation. Sometimes people ask me, well, how do you, why are you so different on Econ Talk? And the answer is, I put my Econ Talk hat on. Now, I actually have a literal Econ Talk hat now. You can go to my website, russroberts.info, and we have merchandise of hats, and you can even get an Econ Talk pillow or bath towel. Oh, the excitement. But I'm really, of course, talking about a figurative hat that I know I'm there to keep my cool. Now, there are many times I've come close to losing it. And you can hear it. You know, there are a couple of historic episodes where, you know, I got pushed to the limit. Somebody was, was I think, disrespectful, say, which happens. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had to try to stay calm. And I think that's, you know, my joke about that is, you know, we got to talk in those situations, builds character. It's made me a better person. I, and I love that. I love being calm. So when yeah. you talk about preparing for a political conversation uh, or a conversation you know you're going to disagree with people, 
I think that's, it does require, you know, I was teasing about prepping, but you do, you should prep yourself for uh, staying calm. And that's not easy. It's an art, takes a lot of practice. Um, and again, I think the other strategy there that's important in those settings is not to alternate rants, not mm. to have, okay, that person ranted at me. So I'll show them, I'll rant mm. twice as effectively. I'll prove they're wrong. I actually, in those settings, I have one thing I want them to learn one piece of information that I think might get them to imagine a different world. I'll give you an example. I was once talking to a journalist who, who was talking about how much he hated Walmart. Uh, he said, you know, Walmart, they're horrible. They put the mom and pop stores out of business. And I don't remember what I said to him. I remember it kind of made my blood boil. I'm not yeah. a fan of Walmart, but I don't like that sort of, that they're somehow oppressing people. So, I said the wrong thing in real time. What I should have said in response was, how did they do that? Just a calm rhetorical question. Let him give him the chance to teach me something I don't know or for him to reflect on. Because the answer to that is, I, you know, they didn't go around with baseball bats breaking the windows of the mom and pop stores. They put better merchandise in their stores at better prices. And we, the customers put Walmart put the mom and pops out of business because we stopped shopping there. Yeah. So when you, when you have that perspective, different. It's like, oh, that's the goal of that one comment. If I could make that calm. And if I yelled at him or showed him that I was angry, education is dead. His yeah. back goes up. He starts getting angry. There's no learning. All it is is a shouting match of who can be louder, more, more prove that they're more passionate about their position. I used to be that way when I was younger. I still am sometimes. Try not to be now. You did say that when we were talking before this. You said something because um, I made a note of it that anger, um, anger is an obstacle to to learning. Right? Yeah. If you're if you're so focused on um, your own emotion about that. Um, another person we had on Pamela Koreski, who's another psychologist uh, who worked with Jonathan Haidt, who was one of your former guests, uh, and Greg Lukianoff on the coddling of the American mind. One of the things she says is. You shouldn't go into these kind of conversations, the political ones, thinking again about persuasion. And you don't even need to go in thinking about agreement, really. What you should, what you should bring with you is curiosity, intellectual curiosity, right? So you look at someone else and you say, this person is totally opposed to me on this point, right? Whether it's a policy position or whatever else it is. But in every other respect, this person's a lot like me, right? They seem like an intelligent person. They seem like a person who cares about the people in their lives, who cares about their community, that they're dedicated to that. Uh, and so I ought to be able to really gin up enough intellectual curiosity to say, how did they come to that point of view, right? And, and this to me, when you describe, you know, econ talk uh, as conversations for the curious, I think just thinking back to this, this recent episode you had with Frederick DeBoer, I think, yeah. Um, who is, is the episode notes listed as a self-described Marxist and yep. you are, shall we say, not. Not. Um, I'm going to take a, a, little, a little detour into one of my favorite subjects, complaining about Facebook. Um, we recently had Stephanie Slate, who's the managing editor of Reason on, and we posted on Facebook her New York Times op-ed. And it is, um, the title is something like, Republicans are ribbing out the very heart and soul of, of their party. And that's a quote. She's quoting Reagan there, right? Reagan said libertarianism is the heart and soul of conservatism. 
well, we posted this on Facebook and like within three seconds, we had people who said, look, I, I can't believe you're putting something out from the New York Times. It's a leftist propaganda rag. I'm not going to read that. Um, or you call yourself a centrist organization, which we don't. Um, and therefore, you know, and, and you put this kind of trash up. I think a lot of conversations we have or try to have are like that, right? Saying, well, I totally disagree with this person. So you've got this guy who's a self-described Marxist and he's on to talk about his book, which is about education and about the way systems of education are. But throughout that conversation, as you're talking about the book, you get to a point where you're actually talking about his point of view and asking him to put it out there so that you can respond to it. But all of that is done. Nobody's raising their voice. Um, and, and I think that requires a lot of trust on both people's part. So just in that instance, that conversation itself, how did you think about that? Well, you know, I read his book uh, and his book is, is, I disagree with large chunks of it. Most of it's not about his Marxist view. It's his view of education, which is quite provocative, which is that we can't reform the education system. There's a certain inevitability about differences between us, intellectual differences, and to pretend that everybody can get across some particular intellectual finish line is a fantasy. That's his main thing. And it's an interesting idea. I don't, I don't totally agree with it as a teacher and as being married to a teacher. Um, and we've spent a lot of time talking about education and what people can grasp and, and how you can get people to to stretch and reach for higher goals if you expect a lot of them. My wife's a high school teacher where I think that's very important. So, you know, we had a, that's really interesting. So that part was easy to talk about. The Marxist part I thought was was less, uh, it wasn't as fleshed out in the book. So when we talked about that, I, I didn't think we were gonna have a, a shouting match. And I also had a, you know, a, a inkling from his book of what kind of person he is. And you know, I'll give you two different kind of experiences. There are some people who write horrible things in their books, ridiculous, absurd claims, positions. And when I challenge them on the show, they, they actually go think they say things like, Yeah, well, that was just in the book. I know. I thought kind of thinking, what? Really? Why would you put that? You know, why would you exaggerate? I don't think it, I, you know, there's one way to think about it. It was just, you know, it's just in the moment he thought he'd deflect my criticism, but it felt like he actually meant that. He actually meant that he, you know, kind of exaggerated it for effect. You know, it's like when you have a press release about some study, the the authors don't necessarily write the press release. The PR office, say for the university, writes the press release, and they tend to put it in sort of grandiose terms. And if you press the people who did the actual study, they say, "Oh yeah, it was kind of embarrassing that you know the PR people left out all the caveats and the maybes and the fact that it could be as much as and or as little as." And, and so when somebody does that in a book, an author, an academic, it just, it, it kind of just shocks me. The other thing though, which I think is important and comes back to your earlier point, there are people I've, you know, who've asked, not people, I have listeners who say, why don't you interview so-and-so? And so-and-so is somebody who disagrees with me to the same level, say, as this week's guest, Frederick DeBoer. And you know, I write, I don't write this back to them because I don't want to say this about another person, but the reason I don't invite so-and-so is that I don't respect so-and-so. I've read their arguments. I find them cherry-picked and, and mean-spirited and disrespectful and caricatures of my view, right? They disagree with my view, but it's a caricature of my view. Why do I want to have a discussion with them where I'm going to try to convince them? Again, a convincing, not an educational dialogue, 
that, oh, actually, I'm a nicer person than you think. I, mean, I have a lot of people who, you know, on Twitter and an email who accuse me of being a pawn of the rich or, you know, out, you know, I'm in, I, I'm in, I have some position on the pandemic because, you know, I'm trying to save some material financial interest of mine. It's like, or worse, you know, I'm against the minimum wage because I think companies should be able to exploit workers. Really? You think that's why I'm against the minimum wage? I'm against the minimum wage because I think it hurts the least skilled among us. And I might be wrong about that, but I actually cared passionately about that and that you can't imagine that. I don't want to talk to you. Why do I want to have that conversation? So, you know, I, it took me a while, but, on, you know, I block people on Twitter. You know, I have a note now at the top of my profile and I'm on Twitter at Econ Talker, by the way. But I block people who who assume the worst of me without knowing anything about me. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, I know why you like so and so or this position. It's like actually, I don't even like that position. And now you're telling me the reason. You know the reason why. <laughs> like, so those people you shouldn't talk to them. You wouldn't let them into your house to have dinner with you to chat with them. They're just it's not productive. So there there is a minimum standard of civility and respect that I think is necessary for the kind of conversations we're talking about. Uh, and for those other ones, just stay away from them. They're not healthy for you. They're, you know, they just make your blood boil. Why would you do that? Not good for you. Yeah. Yeah. I think that um, I want to definitely talk, especially about social media and the effect of social media and the idea of like a virtual dinner table, right? Mm-hmm. We, we can talk about that. But before we get to that, one of the things, and, and we've got a question I can see already in the um, queue about, um, about polarization. That's something we're very interested in, obviously. And, and as we get closer to what is a very contentious election, I think, um, and we've got other things going on, you know, like this whole pandemic thing um, that are affecting our ability to kind of talk with one another about tough issues, which is always tough to do, but especially so now, um, you know, I think there is a question about have things gotten worse on those terms that we're less able to talk to one another? Um, is something special going on? And in particular, you know, you've talked to, I'm just off the top of my head, you know, you had Arnold Kling on um, recently about the reissue of his book, The Three Languages of Politics. Um, you've talked to Liliana Mason at, um, who's at Maryland, I think, on Uncivil Agreement. And she's got a book that talks about our identities being consumed really are swallowed up by partisan politics. Um, Sebastian Younger, you had on uh, to talk about tribe. Um, So I've heard you say, right, taking from each of these people, the importance of tribes, right? It's crazy to think that we're not part of tribes. That's an important part of who we are. But that at the same time, uh, I think there is some worry about what our questioner is asking about insanely polarized left and right and how, how we're going to reconcile and mend relationships going forward. Um, what, what have you learned about what we would probably call polarization about our inability to talk to one another from those people? And what do you think's going on? So it's a big question. It's a great question. And obviously we could spend another hour on that, but um, I'm 66 years old, which means I was born in 1954 I was a teenager in the in the '60s. Um, I remember it very vividly. It was a time when we were very polarized. There was a lot of anger, a lot of yelling. There's a lot of violence. A lot of, there were bombings and and protests that ended in violence. It's uh, both by the protesters and the police. So when I think about the current moment, I do try to remember that we've had moments like this before. 
um, that we did somehow come out of. Uh, that's important. That's my source of optimism, although I am very concerned right now. I'm very pessimistic. We are taping this five days or so before the election, and it's, it is an alarming and very, very scary time. It, it is, it is a, almost a cliche. I used to indulge it myself to say that uh, America's always been polarized to some degree, I, you know, and politics has always been a blood sport. Go back to the election of 1800. That was nasty too. But I do think that I do think we're in a different time. And I, I want to give a couple of reasons why I think the reason that I've pointed to in a econ talk episode on the outrage epidemic is what I call it. Um, in an essay I wrote on it, it has to do with how the media's incentives have changed. The media, uh, obviously, the main, the, the former mainstream media, newspapers, TV, and so on, TV news, have been badly damaged by the internet, which is mostly a good thing. There's a lot more choice out there. Uh, the problem is, is that in that more competitive world, when it's not just three networks giving you the mostly the same thing every night, meat and potatoes, now you get whatever you want. You can get your sushi over here, your your Mexican food over here, your Chinese, you know, you get what, it's a buff, massive buffet of information of anything you want. What that means though, is that profitability, which depends on listenership, is very competitive in a way it wasn't before. Before you could do a mediocre job, make a good living in, a, in the news world, either as the main newspaper in your town or the uh, one of the three major networks, that's gone. And they find themselves in competition, not just with the people on the other side of the fence, but the people on their side of the fence. So if you, if you're, um, if you're uh, CNN, it's it's tempting to say, well, your competitor is Fox. Not really. Your competitor is MSNBC, and therefore you're going to have to be as loud and angry about Fox as they are, or you're going to lose a bunch of listeners who enjoy that buffet. That particular, they have their tastes are over there. And so I think that has destroyed, literally destroyed the journalism business as we knew it 20, 20, so to last 15, 20 years ago, when there was at least a pretense of objectivity. There's no pretense of objectivity now, totally different. Uh, and again, people say, yeah, that was the way it was in America in 1783. Yeah, totally different though. It's the problem, not really the best um, analogy. Everything is different now for, for lots of reasons, the reach of democracy, um, Anyway, so I think we're a lot angrier because anger sells and the media has to, if they don't sell anger, they're not going to get any clicks. Most people like getting angry. Most people like feeling superior to their intellectual opponents. I think that's an unhealthy thing to succumb to, but it's a very human and common thing. Most people like feeling part of a tribe. It's very human. It's who we are. It's not inherently bad. There are many wonderful things about tribes, clans, families, and then there's some dark things about them. And what the media landscape has done now is exacerbated the dark things. It's it's put them on steroids. And so we haven't figured this out yet. No one has to figure it out, but it will emerge as a norm, I hope, and get better. But right now, we're not in a very good place. And what that means is, the analogy I use is that, you know, people can go around, think about how weird it would be if while you were asleep, people could put bumper stickers on your car. You know, that instead of saying, I break for animals, which was a common bumper sticker of my youth, they would say, I accelerate to kill animals running in front of my car, or I hate so-and-sos, a certain kind of person, or it's like, oh, and you go to peel that off, and sometimes you can't peel it off, or worse, they put a big sign in front of your house. The person who lives here is, 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 a, is, is a moron. 
person who lives here is wicked. Person who lives here is evil. Person who lives here doesn't love his children. It's like, ah, but yeah. that's what social media lets people do. And they let it lets them do it anonymously. Mm-hmm. So of course, there's a there's a dark side of all of us that we if we could say something nasty or mean about people we think are wrong, we might be tempted to do so. But to have a, a whole app, a whole website that lets me do that all day long, uh, that kind of appeals to the worst side of us. So I, I think we're in a particularly challenging time for polarization. And I think, you know, the, the point I made about CN, CNN and MSNBC, instead of moving to the middle where the bulk of the listeners are, these the middle starts getting peeled off by people on the extremes. And so all of a sudden, the middle is not where you want to be. Yeah. Same thing's happening with our political candidates, right? You've noticed, if you've noticed uh, over my lifetime, you know, there used to be Democrats you'd call conservative. There used to be Republicans you'd call liberal. That's dead. Why is that? Why is it that we have two candidates who I would not call centrist? Uh, they're, they tend to represent, and Joe Biden is a more centrist candidate than Donald Trump on paper, but it's obviously the case that the Democratic Party and Biden's positions on many issues have moved away from the center, just like Trump's did, which is part of the reason he was able to be elected. So that, again, the old wisdom was in the primary season, you run for your base. You, you, you appeal to the, the, most, you know, the most passionate part of your party. And then when the main election comes, you run to the middle. Because yeah. you want to reassure the independents and the the more moderate members of your party that you're that you're not going to do all those crazy things you say you do in the primary. Well, those days are over, more or less. I mean, there's a little bit of that going on in this election. I don't want to go into details, but there are much more extreme things on the table. And now the proponents of those, the people who love those candidates, say things like, "Oh, he won't really do that when he's elected." And I'm thinking, "Well, he might. Why, why are you so sure?" Yeah. And that again goes for both parties. So they both staked out much more extreme positions, you know, uh, about contesting this election, about uh, our constitutional system. I mean, we're in an unbelievable time, terribly interesting, but terribly frightening of uncharted uh, tolerance for extreme ideas on both sides, I would say. Things that would have been unimaginable 10 years ago uh, of a presidential candidate when, when each side, again, I'm not going to go into the details, but each side's been asked questions in the debate where they don't just hedge the answer to make you think, oh, yeah, they don't really, they're not that passionate about it. They totally ignore the question, don't answer it at all. Yeah. Because they don't want to offend their base that for them, it's that's their issue. Yeah. And that's just, um, boy, that's a dark time, I think, for our, for our country. You can't be honest. Yeah. The candidates are not honest about their their actual you know positions. And the base of each party, the more, by base, not the right word, the more extreme members of each party have a lot more sway than they used to have. And so that's what I think we're seeing when we talk about polarization. The thing I would say to everybody out there listening, politics is not where life happens most of the time. Life happens around our tables and with our children and our parents and our loved ones and our, and our relatives. And uh, I know that everybody thinks that if that other person wins on, on November 3rd or November 30th, you know, if it takes a while to figure it out. Oh my gosh, it's going to be horrible. We're going to be a fill in the blank socialist country, a fascist dictatorship. It's probably not true. And you can have a good life 
with whoever's elected, most of us. There may be people who are, you know, badly affected by one candidate winning or the other, may have a tougher time. We should worry about that. It's important. But most of us live in a country, thank God, where it's not, it's, we have lots of life outside of Washington, D.C. Yeah. We just had Chris Fryman from uh, William and Marion, and he's just finished a book called Why It's Okay to Ignore Politics. And one of the points he makes is that if, if you were watching a movie or a television show that did to you what partisan politics seems to do in terms of being willing to dehumanize other people uh, or to, you know, these polls that say, you know, a not insignificant number of people think are willing to entertain the possibility that if significant numbers of people who are in the out party from them died, the country would be better off, right? Oh, if you were watching or reading books that made you feel that way, you would have a moral obligation to turn them off or shut them. But in yeah. fact, what we're doing is like ratcheting up the volume. Yeah. Give me, um, give me more of that. yeah. And, and, and actually that's something we have to think about is our own role in it. It's not happening to us necessarily. It's something that, you know, at, at, at some level, there is, a, I think there is a meeting of our, our demands and needs for that kind of thing, you know? Um, I, I wanna make sure and get a question in here um, that was about the FCC fairness doctrine. Um, Sharon asked, do you think reinstating FCC fairness doctrine would help? Well, you know, there's a whole bunch of things on the table right now yeah. to try to introduce more honesty into, into the conversation, which is a whole separate I mean, there's sort of two, two levels here. There's, there's literal lying, uh, fake videos, fake uh, footage, and that's, of course, a, pro a serious problem. Then there are things that some people think are, quote, outside the pale. And I, I don't like the government deciding what's outside the pale. I don't like Facebook deciding it either but I'm really uncomfortable with the government deciding it. So, you know, fairness is um, inherently a subjective word. If we think more generally about what the government can do to improve the quality of political information or policy information, I think generally want the government to stay out of it. I think what, what I wanna see is fewer barriers to entry for competitors to Facebook, Twitter, and so on that might offer different alternatives. There's a lot of uh, platforms trying to create the next social media alternative, and they struggle with the fact that you can't uh, export your followers or your tweets or your posts to that new campaign. Because so I've you know I've written a, I don't know thousands of posts on Twitter, they don't belong to me in any real sense. I don't have access to them. Uh, they belong to Twitter. So what I've done, and I've, it's a good deal for me. They don't, I don't pay anything for it. I'm not complaining. But what they've done is, they're not very good at it. Twitter isn't very good at making money, but, but they've used our content to create an umbrella for them to, to make money off of ads, which is what Facebook's incredibly good at. Mm -hmm. And you know, part of me says, God bless them. That, that's, you know, that's, that's the name of the game. But we could think of some different ways to, to find the property rights in the content that I create on those sites uh, or to allow newcomers to access that in a way that, that we allow, say, with, 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 say, phone numbers. Now, I'm not saying that's a good idea because I haven't thought it through, I haven't talked about it enough, but I, my first thought is that's a better way to get there from here than the government deciding you know, what Facebook can post or they have to be liable for 
everything that shows up on their site, regardless of who posted it, mm. that's that's going to be the end of, of of social media. Having said all that and complained, I love Twitter. Uh, when I realized, you know, you talked about how it makes you know certain consumption or conversations make you feel. I had times on Twitter, you know, in the last few years where I'd I'd be in a bad mood, and I'd think about why am I in, why am I in such a bad oh yeah that person said that horrible thing about me, you know, um, really ugly, ugly, grotesque accusation. And I realized I should block that person again, going back to what I said before, I wouldn't let that person come into my house and say, hi, I'm here for you. What do you want to say about me in front of my friends <laughs> that I can't dispute anonymously, yeah. that you're going to say anonymously? So I think a lot of this one step I think everyone should take who's on social media if you want to contribute to a more civil discourse, is to block people who aren't civil. You don't know them anything. Block them. Stop playing. Stop playing with them. Stop engaging with them. Don't let them talk to you because they put you in a bad mood. They really will. And so I think I think that's a really relevant point about the role of 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 the current. I mean, a lot of people I've talked to are in them. They're depressed. Maybe even clinically, but they're not. You know, part of. I don't want to use that word too casually, but you know, a lot of people I know are just like they're down because of the nature of discourse, what people are saying about each other, uh, the policy things that are on the table. This is such a unusual time. And uh, you know, find ways to, to get away from that. Read some Adam Smith, go back to the 18th century, get in touch with, go read some Aristotle, read some poetry. You know, I'm reading a book, uh, it's called uh, One Long, I think it's One Long River of Song by Brian Doyle. You wanna get yourself in a good mood? Read that book, pick it up. Not a moment, there's not a political word in it. It's just about human beings and their experiences. And it's gloriously written. Nice. I like that. Um, yeah. I, so I, I'm interested in that too. Um, the question of how you go forward. So you've just given us one example. Um, we have somebody in the chat, uh, Julian, who's mentioning Braver Angels, which is a group we work with. Um, they called us recently to ask us to promote a one-on-one -on -one conversation platform that they have, right? So they'll match you up red, blue, rural, urban, black, white, one-on-one -on -one online. And um, as we've talked to them, we've said, look, we've we've been promoting it, but we're, we're not getting a lot of people who, who are willing to take those steps. I think part of it can be the fear of doing it, committing to conversations with strangers online about political differences. And they give you guidance and stuff too. So it's not like they're just throwing people out there. The arena. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That would be very different. Here's and that your is, red cape. Go enjoy yeah, the bowl. <laughs> yeah, that is what's on social media sometimes, right? Um, but, you know, I was listening to your conversation with Arnold about the um, three languages of politics. And one of the things the two of you discussed there was, um, you know, the people who will read the book and think about those things might not be the people who need it, right? They might not be the people who are going to learn from it. And maybe a lot of people who are willing to take the steps to get on and have these one-on-one -on -one conversations already are, you know, they want to learn, they want to, they want to engage with someone else, but, um, you know, maybe they're the people who most need it are not going to be, be willing to engage or be trying those things. So, so what to do about the fact that there's all these other people out there who may not want to take on the kind of responsibility of let's make things better. Well, I'm a big fan of making the world better one step at a time, one person at a time, one hour at a time. I don't think we need to figure out the solution to 
polarization or this moment or social media. I think there's a huge mistake we make. You know, every one of us has something we can do here if you want to. Now, we're in a minute, you'll remind me, I, I want to talk about the people who don't want to. But for those of us who want to do something about it, who don't like this moment, it's really simple. Don't yell back. <laughs> you know, I can't tell you how many times people have yelled at me online or in emails or in person, and I don't yell back and they go like, oh, oh I kind of, they apologize often. So I kind of lost it. I was in a bad mood. I shouldn't have vented at you. I just felt, you know, so it's very effective not to respond in kind. It's not as much fun sometimes because you do sometimes like getting into the shouting match, but try to think, I think step back is a really good idea. Those of us who care about civil discourse, kindness, all the cliches that are, that are I think actually tr deep truths, uh, we have an opportunity to make a small contribution in every interaction we have with people who don't agree, who don't agree with us. And that could be about over politics or where we're going to dinner tonight with your spouse or your buddy. It's, you know, it, it's really um, every minute you have an opportunity to be a decent human being. I like the expression, everyone is in a battle, so be kind. Taking that to heart, which isn't easy because <laughs> it's easy to forget and it's yeah. easy to to want to indulge in a different motto. Uh, but when you can do that, you make, you make the world a better place. I think that's really uh, kind of straightforward. Now, um, I think we should confront the fact, and I think this is really uh, you know, really challenging. You know, a lot of the times we don't want to talk to people who disagree with us. You know, we say to ourselves, oh, it's a waste of time. Mm -hmm. They're idiots. But sometimes it's, well, what if I found out I was wrong? What if I found out that the worldview, which I think is bolstered by all the facts are on my side after all, what if I find out there's facts that make me uncomfortable? And I think that's, again, takes a lot of courage. Vulnerability takes courage. Uh, you know, I've been in a lot of arguments especially when I was younger, where the only it was all just debating points. And I make a big contrast between debate and conversation. Debates about winning, scoring, you know, refuting. Conversations about learning, listening, explaining, exploring. Those are all better than those other kind of debate type things. Mm -hmm. And I think if we can have the courage to be vulnerable, to say like, you know, it's okay to say like, you know, I never thought of that. That's a really good point. I, or I didn't know of that study it's probably wrong, but I should at least look at it, you know? So I think that there, it takes a certain level of courage to um, open yourself to a, a real conversation as opposed to a debate. Uh, I've been in so many debates where, you know, people, you back them into a corner intellectually, they almost never say, you know, you make some really good points. I'll have to think about it some more. I mean, mm -hmm. when's the last time you're in a, an angry conversation like that? What, what but in a conversation, as opposed to a debate, you could have a moment like that. And you could have a moment like that where you think it, but you don't admit it, which would still yeah. be good. That'd be a huge step forward. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, so we have a we have a couple of questions here that I want to definitely get in. One from Travis, who says he's a listener of Econ Talk and has been since 2009, which is awesome. Thank you, Travis. He says there are mass block lists in Twitter where groups post large lists of accounts to block based on profiles or opinions. Do you think this can lead to even further polarization between hmm. the spread of ideas? Uh, I don't know anything about that. No. Um, I do think there's a terrible, terrible problem in our conversations on Twitter uh, and, and Facebook and elsewhere where you can never criticize your own side because that would be like, well, it'd be tra you're a traitor. 
how could you admit that so-and-so, your, your hero, your political uh, standard bearer, that they made a mistake? So I just lay low about that. I'll just let other people say it. And then if you do say something nice or critical of someone that you're not supposed to, you have to then like put all these parentheses and, and asides. And, you know, it's like, so-and-so did a really good thing that day. Not that I like him. I mean, he's horrible. Of course, of course, I think he's evil. But, and so I think it's, that's a real, um, and we see that in the pandemic, uh, you know, recording this, you said in the middle of the pandemic. And as a result, you know, you can't, <laughs> What kind of world do we live in where if you say something about masks, you've made a political statement? That's a weird thing, right? That's not yeah. healthy. We're yeah. trying to figure out whether we should wear masks or not. So masks have been become a form of tribal identity, uh, either wearing one or not wearing one. Both sides have it. And uh, that makes it hard to figure out how to reduce this pandemic. That's bad. Yeah. So not good. No, not at all. Uh, okay, one last question before we get to some housekeeping business here. And this is from Chalen, who has said that I'm asking all the softball feel-good questions to you, but he wants to get to the real tough elephant in the room oh. question that they all came here for, according to oh, him. Oh, great. I better, oh, oh, I can't hear you. <laughs> what? <laughs> Give he, me wants the hard know, he wants to know when Econ Talk is getting new music in the intro. <laughs> oh, that is, oh, that's a brutal question. Uh, thank you, Chalen. Don't let him dodge the question, Chalen writes. Um, it, it's an interesting thing. I, I I chose that music, that intro music for Econ Talk, because someone had used it as the soundtrack for a beautiful visualization of how flights, airplane flights across America mirror population and travel patterns. So not surprisingly, the market responds to that by creating more flights for more common uh, trips and fewer flights for the less attractive trips, something like that. I'm giving you the rough idea of it. And this person put the music behind that. And I thought, well, that's kind of one of the most important themes of Econ Talk, emergent order, the idea that things aren't planned by any one czar or airplane, you know, uh, uh, czar. So I liked, I just kind of like that. I put it up. So now when I, if I ever, I do occasionally run a poll of what we should do with the music. There are people who want to get rid of it. They're sick of it. I do remind you that it's only uh, for a few seconds, but there are people who defend it, you know, who feel like it's kind of, um, there's a Pavlovian love for it too. Because they know it's know, coming. Yeah, here comes the food. It's like the can opener for my cat. It's the way I like to think of it. Yeah. I don't have a cat anymore, but you know, we used to have an electric can opener for our cat. You play the can opener and uh, the cat shows up. They're kind of a pitiful thing, but, and I don't mean to suggest that econ talk is brain food, but I like to think it is. I do. I think, I think that's right. Well, we are going to be running out of time here and we want to respect people's time again, but I just want to say thank you, Russ, for being here. I know I totally enjoyed the conversation and I, too. And I it's great. Um, suspect that the folks who are listening did as well. Uh, if you are not already following Russ on Twitter, at Econ Talker. You can also find out more at his website, russroberts.info, and you can get your Econ Talk swag, right? Uh, we want to give a big thank you to our co-sponsor, the Library of Economics and Liberty. You can find their work, including Econ Talk at econlive.org. Um, we'll put the link in our follow-up email tomorrow. Uh, it's an online resource for economics of for every part of life. They've got a daily blog, Econ Log. Uh, Econ Talk, of course, the Concise Encyclopedia of Economics, and a whole bunch of different things that can be used in the classroom, but also for self-directed learning. So uh, as I said, we'll put the link there as well. 
Uh, if you enjoyed today's conversation and you want to hear more, we want to encourage you to subscribe to our podcast, Civil Squared, wherever you get your podcasts. I mentioned our episode this week, just in time for the election, why it's okay to ignore politics with uh, Dr. Chris Fryman of William and Mary University. And um, our conversations with Tanya Israel, Pamela Pereski, we get to talk to really interesting people every other week, and we'd love to have you join us. So just final words of thanks. Thank you for taking your time out of your day, which I'm sure is busy for all of you to join us. Uh, I hope it was a worthwhile investment on your part. And thank you especially to those of you in the audience who are donors to Civil Squared. We are a public charity, and it's only because of the generosity of our supporters that this kind of programming is possible. So if you're not already a donor and you found this conversation worthwhile, I hope you'll join our community of supporters. Uh, you can find a donate button in your follow-up email, and I hope you use it. Russ, thank you so much for being with us. It was awesome, and thanks for everything you do with Econ Talk. Um, I think you said you wanted to learn stuff uh, from your conversations. I know that when I listen to it, I learn stuff all the time and I really okay. appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. It was a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, we will link to all of the things I mentioned about Russ's work in the show notes. Uh, Econ Talk, obviously, his videos, The Rap Battles, and some stuff about his books. I hope that uh, you enjoyed hearing about the way Russ sets up his conversations and what he hopes to learn from them. Uh, it's pretty hard not to learn from somebody who has that much experience. And what I particularly will take away from that conversation uh, and think about is something he said about anger being a challenge to learning. We've heard this before from other people we've had on the podcast, but if we approach conversations as opportunities to learn, as opposed to opportunities to persuade other people or get them to think the way that we do, we have a much better chance of learning something. And I think for someone who has recorded so many episodes of a podcast and talked to so many interesting people, to just say flat out, I already know what I think, I'm trying to learn from other people, I think that is a guideline that we could probably all use day to day. Thanks for listening.